I'm a little late to a particular party that a lot of people have been a part of, and the party I'm talking about is the ESPN documentary series, The Last Dance. Any fans? Yeah, if you know anything about me, you might be surprised that I watched it at all. Not a big sports guy, and really not a big basketball guy, like at all. So forgive me if there's fans in the house of basketball. Like, I've just never been able to get behind it. But I'm two episodes into The Last Dance. I'm totally hooked. It's fascinating, right? And for me, it's fascinating as much as anything, just for the insight into these larger-than-life characters. The, there's some interesting drama. There's some interesting psychology. And one of the interesting psychological tidbits that I took note of was Michael Jordan. By the way, sorry, if you don't know The Last Dance, this is a documentary series that chronicles uh, especially Michael Jordan's last season with the Chicago Bulls and that entire incredible team and their journey toward another championship. And you're watching Michael Jordan talk about uh, his college career and then landing with the Bulls. And what blew my mind is Michael Jordan repeatedly talks about the coaching that he received and how much he valued it. Michael Jordan, not known as a humble person, talks repeatedly about the coaching he got both in college and with the Bulls with Phil Jackson and how much he respected it. In fact, these guys talk about respecting their coach so much that they're not going to play unless he sticks around with them when there's a little kerfuffle between team management and the coach and all this stuff. So I'm just watching this thinking to myself how peculiar it would be that like one of the greatest performers of all time in this particular arena would speak openly and freely about his desire for coaching and the good that it did for him. Because I don't know that that's a common turn for a lot of us with whatever it is that we are pursuing in life. And if it's true that like one of the greatest performers uh, that's ever set foot on a basketball court can affirm the value that coaching has had in his life, then like you have to think like how much more so uh, for other arenas of human endeavor, right? I mean, like if coaching is important for uh, professional development then like, how much more would it be really good to be the kind of people who seek out great coaching in the prospect of becoming human, uh, of knowing God, of, of becoming fully alive, of growing toward love? Like, How much more would it make sense for us to seek out coaching in that regard? And one of the things as a community that we, we feel really strongly about, that we try to recover, is the idea of Jesus as an actual teacher <laughs> who actually has a, a way of life that he is wooing us into, coaching us into, saying this is a way of being human that's better than the other ways that we have tried of being human. And that's one of the things that motivates the series that we are working through that we call Sacred Questions, which is just to put ourselves in the seat of being coached or questioned uh, by God throughout the scriptures, or specifically Jesus as he shows up in the Gospels, to let ourselves be sort of grown up and led forward by the questions that come from, in, in tonight's case, Jesus who I think is actually interested in coaching us and becoming more human and more alive and becoming the kinds of people who make a more beautiful world. And I want to get uh, into one of those questions again tonight to keep this series going. So we're going to turn to uh, one of the concentrated dose of Jesus's coaching, if you will, uh, a place where Jesus has lots to say about like how to become fully human and fully alive and live the best kind of life. And it's a passage in the scripture often called the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And you can read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in a few different ways, but it seems pretty clear that this is a, a condensed, distilled picture of Jesus' core teachings about what the kingdom of God is like and how we live in harmony with the kingdom of God. And so right there in the middle of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in Matthew 6, Jesus says this. Let me show it to you on the screen. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and your, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, and is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Uh, in the middle of that passage on worry, Jesus asks a question, which is something like, which of you by worrying can add a single day to your life? Uh, I want to take that question and work with it tonight, but I want to phrase it a little more directly by saying it like this. What is your worrying doing for you? What is your worrying doing for you? That's the question I'm hoping that we can hear from Jesus tonight. Uh, and I'm going to work through some of the challenges this question raised because it's kind of a hard question to hear right now. Um, there are a lot of reasons to worry. Like even in normal life, there's a lot of reasons to worry. I get that, right? Like if you have people you love, you might worry about them and whether they're going to be okay. And if you have a bank account, you might worry about the balance in it. And if you have a job, you might worry about things not going the way they need to go at the job. And if you are like wondering whether you're going to have employment security, you might be even more concerned. And if you have health issues, you might be unaware of what day they're going to flare up. And so you're always worried about them flaring up. And that doesn't have anything to do with any of the things particularly going on during this hellish year that we call 2020, right? But in 2020, we have the entire state of California, Washington, and Oregon burning, literally, uh, signs of climate change that is coming for us, whether we admit it or claim it or know it or not. Uh, we've got um, painful reminders seemingly every week of the kind of injustices that afflict our black sisters and brothers in the world that we have made that is unjust for them. We've got COVID coming for us with deaths skyrocketing, and we're in the hundreds of thousands, and it's going to keep going for some time, it seems. And I know that some of you are tired of coming to church and hearing the preacher talk about the bad things because there's a lot of bad things, and maybe you don't need me to remind you of all the bad things. I get that. But I just want to say, if we're going to talk about this teaching to not worry, I don't want to be the kind of preacher who's like, what are you worried about? Because you're sitting there thinking, are you crazy? There's lots of things to be worried about. I get that. One of the problems here with like, what it is to be human is that our brains have this incredible capacity to imagine the future. And if we didn't have that capacity, we couldn't plan for the future and create for the future and design for the future. So that's really good. But these brains are also really, really good at imagining all kinds of scenarios that might even be probable, that might even be likely, but they're not the ones that we're living in today. And we borrow them from tomorrow and bring them back to right now. And so there's plenty of justification for your worry. But Jesus doesn't ask you, is your worry justified? He asks you, what's it doing for you? Can any one of you add a day to your life with those uh, obsessions and projections and pictures of the future that might, in fact, be probable? Can any one of you um, do any good with tomorrow's worry that you're borrowing today? He doesn't ask whether you're justified in worrying, because frankly, you might be. Like, that might be the logical thing to do with the world that you are occupying right now, but he doesn't ask that. He just asks... What's your worrying doing for you? 
And I think that's a really good question for all of us who are having a hard time sleeping right now. And uh, for all of us who don't want to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> and for all of us who feel the kind of ambient anxiety just um, stealing joy from us every single day. Uh, and I want to propose that there's some insights in this passage that could actually help us work this out. Uh, and a side uh, disclaimer is important here. Um, hopefully you're used to hearing these kinds of disclaimers from our community. Uh, if anxiety is something like you struggle with, uh, maybe like even in a clinical way, like please hear me. This is not a sermon that's meant to heap a heavier burden on that struggle. It's not meant to judge you if you're having a hard time um, working out anxieties. Like that's not the heart behind this sermon. But that being said, we have Jesus, who I think is a pretty good coach, uh, asking us like, what is your worrying doing for you? Now, um, when we're living through hard times like we are, and then Jesus says something like that, it always raises questions about whether this is naive. Like, is this just kind of like precious moments theology, right? Is this Hallmark card theology? Is this escapist theology? Is this the kind of theology that works for privileged people, but not everybody else? Is this the kind of theology that works uh, when your life is secure, even while the world burns? Or is there something deeper going on? And to make my case for why there's something deeper going on, I want to tell you a story that I might have told you before about um, how I've come to read Jesus when questions of naivety come up. So if this is a rerun for you, uh, hang with me. We'll be through it quickly, okay? Uh, but uh, if you've heard me preach, you know that I've been marked deeply by experiences in the Middle East and especially uh, through immersive encounters with the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. And uh, through a number of trips, I have found myself face-to-face um, -face hearing uh, narratives from the most difficult parts of that experience. And you go there, and you perhaps in one day will meet uh, with an Israeli's mo mother whose son is shot and killed by a Palestinian sniper. And then later that day, you'll meet with a Palestinian father whose 12-year-old daughter was shot and killed by the Israeli Defense Forces when they mistook his car for that of a terrorist. And that's just like one afternoon over there when you're trying to understand the contours of that conflict. So uh, a number of trips over there, and at one point I was in Washington, D.C. for uh, a gathering of people who were invested in trying to seek out positive solutions for the conflict there, and I was having dinner one night uh, with two people, and one of the people was a friend of mine who has taken me on some of these trips, and another person was a new encounter of mine, a new friend, and she's a human rights lawyer uh, who works uh, to specifically advocate for one of the factions in this conflict and for the rights of the people who are part of that faction. She's a very, very fierce, intelligent, empowered woman. And we were having dinner, and I was learning a lot from her. And at one point in the dinner, my friend uh, raised something that I had mentioned earlier when I was just with him. And it was something I said about a different teaching from Jesus, not the one that we're looking at today, but a different teaching. And I was thinking out loud with my friend about how that teaching might speak to people who are working on this particular issue. And so my friend says to me, hey, Jay, why don't you tell her that thing that you told me about that thing that Jesus says and what it has to do with this conflict? And by the way, when you're with your pastor friend and there's another person there, don't ask them to talk about the thing they talked about Jesus with you because it's not fair. A, you're not allowed to say no. But B, that, that might not have been for public consumption yet, right? But my friend says, hey, Jay, why don't you tell her that thing that you told me about this thing that Jesus said and how it relates to the conflict? So I felt like I had to, and so I kind of fumbled my way into it. I got a, a few words out when she stopped me. She said to me, like, no offense, but Jesus has nothing to do with this. So, okay, that's, that's fair. She says, we're not talking about some religious thing. We're talking about a centuries-old conflict that's deeply entrenched with military interest and religious narratives and different ethnic conflict and, and foreign interests that are weaponizing the conflict. And the funny thing about this whole encounter was um, 
I know enough about the first century and about the ancient Near Eastern context around the Israelites and then Jesus and all of the things that are happening with the Roman Empire that the more she tried to convince me that the modern situation with conflict and militaries and religion and ethnic factions, the more she tried to talk about how that puts distance between Jesus and the situation, the more it became really clear to me that actually draws Jesus very close to the situation because if you know anything about the first century and what the Israelites are experiencing, you know that they are inhabiting a centuries-old conflict with ethnic factions and military issues and international pressures being put on this very, very valuable piece of land in the middle of all the trade routes of the ancient world. And the more she tried to convince me that it was naive to bring Jesus into this, the more I realized it's naive to think that we would be talking about Jesus 2,000 years later if he had been naive when he stood up and spoke. Because I just don't think the people that he was talking to 2,000 years ago had time for precious moments theology. They were a a largely impoverished nation. They were um, a largely uh, occupied people. They were people who hadn't known their own autonomy or empowerment for a very long time. And a man stands up and offers teachings about the deepest realities and undercurrents of the, of the universe when he talks about the kingdom of God. And I don't think we've heard of him 2,000 years later if it's just like some meaningless bromides that he's dropping. You know, like, I don't think these are simple hashtags. I think uh, one of the reasons that we speak of Jesus today is that he was found to be deeply credible when he spoke about how it is that we navigate the most difficult things. And Jesus, who I think was deeply credible, looks out upon people who are dealing with very difficult things, and he asks them, what is your worrying doing for you? And I think that's a good question for all of us who are rattled right now. Um, There's a term I would like to coin tonight, unless somebody else already coined it. But I especially want to talk about what you might call woke worry. And what I mean by that is all of us who are on a journey of waking up, which is a really good thing, all of us who are discovering that there is more brokenness in the world than we realized, uh, it can be a little bit like taking the pill in the matrix and you can never see anything the same way again, right? I get that. It can be really, really hard. And yet I'm I'm watching my friends and... um, loved ones, as we wrestle with what is being exposed and revealed as we are waking up. And the hard thing about waking up is it often brings with it much more worry. We're discovering that we are more connected than we realized, and we are feeling more responsible than we realized that we were for the brokenness and injustices that are in the world. And that's a really good and beautiful and powerful and important thing. Right, Because if the world is only working for some of us, we should fix it so that it works for all of us. Right, That's all really, really true. And yet there can be this particular kind of worry that comes along with us waking up. And I think it's, 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 um, it's causing real harm to our bodies, to our lives, and especially to our capacity to do actual good in the world. Now there's a, a scholar and an expert in the field of trauma named Bessel van der Kook. And Vandercook uh, was there in the 70s when the whole field of trauma was first sort of coming to the surface. He's one of the researchers that discovered this thing that we now call PTSD among veterans coming back from Vietnam. Uh, he's about as smart and informed as, and as credible as you can get in the field of, of trauma and difficult experience. And he observes, among other things, that when, uh, when something bad is happening in the world, that our bodies have this way of reacting, right? We get flooded with things like adrenaline, we, the, these, these hormonal things happen in our bodies when we see the difficult stuff that's happening. 
And he observes that that can be really good when the thing that's traumatizing you is actually physically right there with you and you can do something about it. Because when your buddy gets flooded with adrenaline, if you can channel that into physical action that does some good in the world on your behalf or your neighbors, well, that's a very adaptive, positive response that our bodies have to trauma and difficult things coming at us, threats, right? But he says, um, if, if you are proximate to trauma or you see trauma or you... Uh, perhaps project trauma, but you can't do anything about it, well, that adaptive response in your body becomes a maladaptive response in your body, and in fact, becomes a really negative, harmful thing, because all those chemicals, all those responses have nowhere to go, nothing to channel them, and you'd be better off having not thought about or seen the thing than having thought about or seen the thing and doing nothing about it. I think a lot of us, especially right now, we are uh, far removed from much of the trauma that we are seeing because it's coming to us across the internet and through our phones. And so we are seeing things that um, we either aren't doing anything about or we can't do anything about. And I think some of us have somewhere started to believe that worrying about those things is somehow helping the cause. Like just worrying about those things is somehow your way of participating in those things. And the problem is it's, it's not actually doing anything but it's warring against us and our bodies. And I, I, like, I don't think there's any positive outcome from that kind of thing. It's like we think that, that carrying around, harboring these worries 24-7 is somehow the part that we play in doing something about all that is broken in the world. And frankly, I think the people who are suffering injustice the most would probably say, if you worried less and did more, that would be great, right? <laughs> but there's this kind of woke worry thing that I think a lot of us are feeling as we wake up. And the waking up is good but the perpetual worry that we are carrying around with us day in and day out, the worry that we are not channeling into action, the worry that just sits in our minds and in our bodies and doesn't do anything in the world, it's not doing anything in the world. And I think Jesus would ask, like, what's your worry doing? For you or for the needs? Um, if you can do something, do something, please. If you discover that there's something broken in the world, whether it's uh, racial injustice or whether it's like just the spread of COVID and you're going to wear a mask, yeah, do something. And if your worry awakens an action, awesome. But if your worry isn't doing anything for you or for the people who are hurting, I think Jesus is asking us to reconsider why we are harboring so much of it in our minds and in our bodies and in our spirits especially when it's doing so much harm to us. Now, uh, here's the good news. Jesus doesn't just like give us this admonishment, like stop worrying. He actually gives us direction in the text. If you listen, you might have noticed it. He asks, like, what's your worry doing for you? And then he um, says, have you considered, right? Have you observed? Have you meditated on? Have you noticed? Have you looked at? And then he gives these examples from the natural world uh, where there's like really beautiful life and care uh, right there on display, right? He talks about like the lily in the field and the bird and how, in fact, uh, upon observing them, you discover that somehow they are cared for, right? Now, uh, when you think about that, uh, about a quick turn toward the natural world, you, you might observe with me something that might, again, sound naive or almost irresponsible to say, but please hang with me and let me make my case for it. As much as there is that's completely messed up in the world right now, as much as there is that is broken in the world, as much as there is that is unjust in the world, as much as the natural world is groaning with all sorts of uh, 
pain and distress, as much as all that is happening right now, you do know this, right? That there is way, 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 way more that's good and beautiful and whole and wonderful and worth celebrating going on in the universe. You do know that, right? Way, 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 way more that is good and beautiful and whole and worth celebrating going on in the universe right now. And yet we have these brains that treat bad things with Velcro and it sticks inside there and we can't let go of it. And good things just slip right on past our brain like the brain is Teflon and they just slide right on by. This is, this is like just basic 101 neuroscience now. But our, we, we just have this way of magnifying the harm and minimizing the good. And Jesus seems to be saying like, have you looked around? Like have you actually looked around? Consider like even like in one square foot of the natural world, all of the organisms that are doing their beautiful, wonderful parts keep life going. At one cubic inch of soil, all the microorganisms that are doing their thing to give that soil life, to give the plants life, to give the animals life, to give us life, and then expand your view from that inch or that acre out to the, the cosmos that we inhabit and consider how many things have had to go right for us to be here living and breathing right now today. Not just living and breathing, but wearing clothes and experiencing shelter and sitting on chairs. Like Consider all of the things that are going right at this microsecond when I say the word now. There is way, 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 way more that is right and good and beautiful and worth celebrating going on at any given moment in this world than all that is wrong. And that's not meant to minimize the wrong. But if we're not careful, we will start to believe that evil is the largest character in the story that we are a part of, and it's not. Evil is a small character in the story, and the way that you know it is it has to scream so loud. Uh, evil is a limited resource. Do you know that? The way that I trust that evil is a limited resource, and you've heard me say this before if you've been around, is that evil brought everything it could against Jesus. Uh, that's a way of understanding the crucifixion of Jesus. Evil brought everything it had and put him in the grave and exhausted all of its resources. And upon exhausting all of its resources, Jesus comes out of the grave resurrected, which is a way of saying evil is a limited resource and the good, the life, the goodness that God gives the world, the being that God lends to every one of us, that underneath everything there is more good than bad. Evil is a limited resource and a small character in the story that we are living in. That's why it screams, but don't you dare be deceived because right now as in any other moment the conspiracy of good things that have had to come together to bring us here and give us life and breath and being is overwhelming compared to the very real and serious fractures that we are feeling so again this isn't about minimizing um, the evil it's about expanding our awareness of the good and Jesus invites us into that with the simplest observation. Have you looked at the natural world? Have you considered for a moment how God's uh, care is demonstrated and all that is alive and flourishing around us every given moment? Uh, I think one of the scary things that Jesus is aware of is that human beings ultimately actually have a way of resigning themselves to the way that they think things are. We, we actually tend to do this. We're actually kind of wired for this. So if you think that at the most uh, base level of the universe, 
is generosity and goodness and love and beauty, you will be likely to live for generosity and love and goodness and beauty. That's actually the way we work. But if you think at the baseline, if you think at the bottom of everything, if you think the most enduring things are evil, it'll be really hard not to replicate that evil in our lives because we tend to work that way. By the way, this is why sometimes like the people who worship God, forgive me, they can seem like the worst kinds of people. Because if you worship a heinous picture of God, if you uh, worship a hateful picture of God, if, if you've been taught that, like, for example, God delights in making human beings to send them to hell forever, like, if, if that's God, it's going to be pretty hard not to be the kind of person who delights in that suffering, too. And we could go on and on about that. But, like, human beings actually tend to operate in accordance with what they believe reality is. And I think Jesus knows that it's going to be really hard to make a beautiful world if you don't know how beautiful things are. It's going to be really hard to work for the good if you don't know how much good there is. It's going to be really hard to love if you don't know that love is the fundamental operating system of the universe. And these things that we are seeing that are breaking the world, they're not part of the design. They are bugs in the system. Now, by system here, I'm talking about God's system. I think we're finding out that many of the injustices are, in fact, features of the system that we have built. But I'm talking about underneath the world that we have built. I'm talking about who God is and how God holds things together. And I think there's way, 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 way more that is good and beautiful and redemptive and we're celebrating. And I think Jesus says you've got to find a way to fixate on that a little bit. Because these brains of ours, they have a way of grabbing the painful parts of this present moment and projecting them forward. And it does not do good things to us. And it doesn't help us do good things in the world. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, my worrying practice and the way that it began to look during COVID. Uh, The beginning of my day, my alarm would go off. And my cell phone is my alarm. So I'd grab my cell phone and I would reconnect it to the world at large. I would lay in bed and I would just, you know, the screen would like bleed, right? (laughs) With headlines and social media posts and text messages from people that had come in while I was resting that needed help or had some concerns. So that would be the very first moment of my day. I'd grab my phone and I would just sort of fetishize all the things that could grab your attention. And you know, they're like, all pretty negative, right? All the clickbaity sort of stuff. The morning I would grab my phone, and then at night, um, I would lay down and I would try to rest, but like I would have all these anxieties, and so then I would like turn toward like vacation fantasies, you know what I mean? <laughs> or like winning the lottery fantasies, you know what I mean? I would like try to like use the imagination to kind of like escape the world that we are living in right now and the pain and the fear of this current moment so that I could relax and fall asleep. And sometimes that actually worked for me. But I, overall, this whole, like this way of worrying my way through the day wasn't working for me. And I could feel joy being constricted and I could find that the hopefulness that I tried to bring to my work was diminishing. And I just don't think that you can do hopeful things if you don't find a way to cultivate hope. And I don't think you can make beautiful things if you don't stay rooted in beauty. And I don't think you can perpetuate joy if you don't know where the joy is. And so I wanted to do something about that. So I started thinking specifically about this text from Jesus and what I know that he says, which is you need to, you need to fixate on just how much is right and beautiful in the world. And a really good way to do that is to look at the natural world. 
And so, um, so my worry in practice was not doing much good for me, and it wasn't helping me do much good in the world. And so uh, I've tried to institute um, some different kinds of practices. And I want to propose to you that the best thing you're going to get out tonight is not the sermon, but if the sermon like, makes a case for you to go home and try some practices, then it will have been worth it. And so uh, for a little while now, here's what my new pattern has been. Uh, I'm not allowed to reconnect my phone to the internet when uh, the alarm goes off. But the alarm goes off, and I get out of bed. And first, I'll, um, uh, this will be another sermon for another time, but I'll turn to a sort of historic pattern of prayer with the scriptures, like a lectionary prayer for like a couple of minutes. And then the next thing I'll do is I'll go outside. And forgive me if this sounds a little too Mr. Rogersy for you, but just hang with me. I'll go outside, and my landlord like, has flowers all over the property. And so I'll go outside, and I'll greet the flowers. Don't mock me. I'll go outside. I'm serious. I, like, and I'll check on him every day. And I'll just think to myself, wow, it's still here. You know what I mean? It didn't burn down. Uh, it didn't get COVID. It's still here, like this beautiful flower. Sometimes there are hummingbirds out there when I walk out my front door visiting the flowers. My landlord also has milkweed on the property, which if you know anything about monarch butterflies, you know that milkweed is where they love to hang out. And so then I'll go over to the, where the milkweed is. And as many days as not, I'll see a monarch butterfly. Now, if a monarch butterfly isn't a gratuitous example of creative tender care over the creation that God gives, I don't know what is. Like, first of all, the idea that that slug thing can become a monarch, that makes no sense to me. But secondly, when you look at a monarch, doesn't it seem like a very fragile thing? And yet, you know those monarchs make the trip from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere every year. I can't do that, and I am far less fragile than a monarch butterfly, right? I can't fly there without a plane, and I'm definitely not going to trek there with my body. But they do that every year, and I'll, I'll see this beautiful, uh, egregious example of creativity right there in the milkweed. And I'll just, like, breathe for a couple of minutes before I begin my day. That's it. I just go outside and say hi to the flowers. And i got to tell you guys, um, not overnight, but over time, it has been uh, slowly rewiring the energy and the posture of my day in really powerful ways. And then let me tell you about the end of the day. And I don't do this every day, but on my best days I do, and it's so helpful. At the end of the day, uh, I grab my journal. And um, I don't do like the Dear Diary, here's everything that happened kind of a thing. Although if you do that, that's great. Uh, I just do a gratitude list, and I don't belabor it. But I tend to move chronologically through the day, and I just write down things that were good, are beautiful. Sometimes it's as simple as uh, FaceTiming with my like honorary niece and nephew and seeing that they're excited that Uncle Jay is on the phone. That's a line on the gratitude list. Sometimes it's uh, a Five Guys burger. Praise God. I felt like I earned it. Maybe I had a really good workout that day. A Five Guys burger. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's um, I, uh, my health. Maybe I just was aware in a special way that day that um, my body was working for the most part, and I want to say thank you for that. Sometimes it's uh, a friend that bothered to reach out with a text. Sometimes it's simply um, some feature of my home that I feel really peaceful in. Sometimes it's a quick conversation that I had with a loved one. Uh, sometimes I just read a really delicious paragraph from one of my favorite writers in a book that day like a juicy paragraph. Uh, sometimes it's I discovered like a new album release from my favorite artist. Um, sometimes there are two or three things on the list. Sometimes there are 12. Some days, I got to be honest, it feels really hard to come up with anything because I've been beaten up by the end of the day. And it's not that there weren't good things there, but man, it takes me a little while to, to remember them. But anyway, 
I'll write down these things that I'm grateful for. And then just this. I'll close the thing and I'll say, thanks, God. And then I'll put my head down on the pillow. And I'll pick one of those things on the list. And I'll just savor it. I'll literally just like ruminate on it in my mind. If it's uh, my niece and nephew through FaceTime being excited to see me, I will just recall what they are like as little human beings and what it's like to hear them laugh. And like the last time that Little Haven, I surprised her when I went down to Nashville and when she saw me and she ran over and said, I missed you and I'll savor that. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll pick the thing. Sometimes I'll pick the album release and I'll just like hear some of my favorite riffs in my ear and just savor the fact that we live in a universe where music exists. What an absurd, gratuitous thing that we live in a universe where music exists. And I'll just ruminate on one of those things from the list until I fall asleep. Now, my mind will wander. Like, it'll go from that wonderful thing to projecting the fact that tomorrow I bet everything is going to end and it's all going to fall apart and the church is going to go bankrupt and everything's just going to be terrible. By the way, we're fine. But like, I'll, like, like my brain will like go off in that direction, right? And it's like, okay, fine, I'll just bring it back. I'll, I'll observe the fact that it wandered. I'll bring it back to just savoring uh, one thing from that list. And here's the thing, you guys. I've been doing this uh, as regularly as possible for a couple of months now. And it has not done anything to diminish my energy or my capacity to work for good in the broken places. It hasn't made me more naive. It hasn't exempted me from the fight. But it is bringing me to the fight in a fundamentally different way than on the days when I've just given myself over to the lie that says that evil is the most powerful character in this story or that evil is the most abundant resource in this world because we tend to work from the things that we believe are the deepest and the truest, whether we know it or not. And I find that when I, when I root my imagination in the good and the beautiful and the true, it doesn't diminish my energy to address the things that are ugly and broken but it, it empowers my energy to try to bring beauty and goodness and truth to the places that are ugly and broken. And this is why I suspect that Jesus, who I don't think is naive, and Jesus who has a lot to say about the necessity that we push back against injustice, and Jesus who calls us to a very high standard of being human, I think that's why Jesus asks us, what is your worry doing for you? Because you don't have time or energy to waste. We need you in the fight. We need you in the game. We need you bringing your best to fix some of the things that are broken, but you're not going to do it if you let your mind fixate on the things that are broken. So what's all that worry doing for you? Now, if you can find a coach or an example of a person who is more woke than Jesus, go for it. If you can um, find yourself living a life that feels more, um, more empowered to address suffering, go for it. But for my money, I genuinely don't know an example that I admire more for how to live these very fragile human lives in the face of all that is, is broken than Jesus. And I see that in uh, his teaching, and I see it in his solidarity with the poor. I see it in his willingness um, to ruffle the feathers when they need to get ruffled. I see it in his willingness to lay down his life. I especially see it in his resurrection, because evil brought everything it had. And... Um, there's a way of reading the resurrection as like magic, like just like 
transcendent magic, but I'm not sure that's quite right. I think a better reading is to say that um, that Jesus' life was so deeply rooted in the reality of God, and the reality of God cannot be defeated, that when death tried to defeat him, it couldn't defeat him. And this, I think, is what the New Testament means when it tells us that his resurrection could be our resurrection too. And so we could root ourselves so deeply in the reality of God that when evil comes for us, we too won't be defeated. And I actually think that there's a serious conversation we could have about our worry and the way that it is cannibalizing our our roots and making it harder to live for the good and the true and the beautiful. So... um, If you do one thing with this, I hope you take it home and just let Jesus ask you repeatedly over the next week or two, what's your worry doing for you? What's your worry doing in the world? And if you realize, like I have, at least for me, that the honest answer is not much, or worse, it's doing some harmful things, it's restricting my spirit and stifling my heart and minimizing the good that I can give, then maybe the next thing we do is we ask Jesus what to do about it. And he says, well, have you considered the flowers? And have you meditated on the fact that there is way, 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 way more that is good than is evil in the world that you and I inhabit today? Uh, I'm going to ask Zach and uh, company to come back up. And uh, they've got one more song for us. And I'm always grateful uh, just to have like a, a beat before we go to meditate. And as they do, like, um, maybe you could just let this question work on you a little bit. Again, I don't mean to put a burden on you. I don't mean to make you feel bad for worrying. Don't feel bad for worrying. But I mean to like help us hear this liberating question from Jesus, which is what if he could lead us out of worry into uh, a more empowered way of living in the world? And what if it starts with a simple meditation, um, a way, 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 way more that's good? Yeah? Go on, Isaac.